Well, I see a lot of old friends, and I see some new faces, so welcome. Really appreciate you all being here tonight. Um, tonight, you're going to be hearing from Allie Sanford. Allie's going to be talking about depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. And despite the growing awareness of these issues, many people still find it really hard to talk about depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. And where to go to get help and asking for help is difficult. Uh, families struggle to know who's the right person to go to. So Allie is going to share her experiences with the interplay between mental health and substance abuse. She's also going to talk about prevailing co-occurring disorders, what signs to look for and how to get help. She is a licensed clinical social worker and a person in long-term recovery. She works primarily with adolescents and families seeking treatment for substance use and mental health issues. In her personal journey, she has been in substance abuse recovery for 16 years and continues to learn and grow. So, Allie, I'm going to pray for you, then welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Allie, Lord, and her desire to be here and her willingness just to share her personal journey in the hopes that she can offer hope and encouragement to other people. Lord, we just pray tonight that you will speak through Allie in a mighty way and will leave here encouraged. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Hey, guys. I feel super fancy having this thing clipped to me. Um, and I will tell you, as many times as I have spoken to audiences, which makes it sound like I do this all the time, which I don't, um, I get super incredibly nervous <laughs> every time. So welcome to my pre-panic attack. Um, I sit because it feels more like we're having a conversation, and that is easier for me to manage. Um, so as John just told you, right, I am a person in long-term recovery. I also have significant experience with mental health issues, thus the pre-panic attack. Um, so uh, let me back up a minute. I want to tell you just a little bit about who I am, what I do, and then I will dive in and hopefully <laughs> give you all the information that was promised. We'll see what happens. Um, so I, I am a licensed clinical social worker. This is not my first career, um, but it is the career that I came into my life at the time that I needed it. Um, I work primarily with families, so I, I always tell people I'm a family therapist at heart. That does not mean I do not love my individual clients. I just really love my families. Um, I have been in recovery from substance use for 16 years. God willing, in May it'll be 17. Um, and I I'm incredibly grateful that my family walked through that journey with me, and that is probably why I am so drawn to working with families. Um, most of my career has been spent working with people in dual diagnosis treatment, so that's people who struggle with mental health issues as well as substance use. However, I think it is silly that we say it that way because substance use is a diagnosable mental health issue. So there's my soapbox for the evening. Hopefully I will not stay on it. Um, Thank you for laughing at my jokes. <laughs> I laugh in my head whether people are laughing out loud or not. Um, so mental health and substance use, right, they are one and the same. However, we talk about them very differently and they are seen very differently by people out in the community. Like again, like John said in the beginning, we do have a lot more awareness in the, in the world these days. However, that also means that there are a lot more um, people who uh, armchair psychiatrists, for lack of a better word, um, 
and that can see, make it seem like it is easier to ask for help, but it also means that we don't always get the help that we need because we have other people in our ears. Uh, so it is really important to me to make sure that I am talking to the right person for the right thing, right? And that I am not always that right person. So when somebody comes to me and says, I need help with this thing, it is really important to me to, if I cannot help them to say, let me help you get to a person that can. Um, I don't know where I, how I got on that track. Let's back up a second again. <laughs> uh, so mental health, super prevalent, right? Approximately 40% of the US, the U.S. adult population at any point can be diagnosed with a mental illness. Uh, and that ranges anywhere from substance use to depression to anxiety to bipolar disorder, right? It's, it's not any specific category. However, uh, about anxiety at, as of 2018, I just Googled these statistics so that I would be prepared for y'all. Uh, as of 2018, anxiety was the most commonly diagnosed mental health issue. The population, there's also about 10% of the U.S. population that can be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. I would argue that it's a lot more common than that. Um, I don't have any studies to back that up, but my experience says that I have never met somebody that hasn't been impacted by substance use. And to me, that means that's more than 10% of the population. Or it could just be, I have a skewed sample since I work in substance use treatment. But <laughs> anyway, um, so we've got all of these things going on, right? We've got depression, we've got anxiety. My experience growing up is that I started, uh, not wanting to wake up basically when I was about 10 years old. Um, part of that is that my family moved around a lot and so I never felt like anything was really permanent. Um, all, all in Atlanta, weirdly, but it meant that I was at a new school about every two years for a while. Um, and so everything felt like it was all just gonna disappear and change. Pretty soon, like no matter what I did, when we did finally stop moving, my parents would get antsy and like rearrange the house every six months. So I still felt like things were in flux. Um, but I started feeling I didn't I didn't know what I didn't know it was depression, but I knew that I wasn't happy and I, that I faked it, faked being happy a lot, um, and that I when I was left alone in my own head, I didn't want to be there. Um, around. 13 was the first time that I think I consciously wanted to die. Um, and thinking back that now, like I have so much compassion for that little kid. Cause like then I thought I was super grown of course, but like I was this baby who just didn't know what to do with all the feelings that she had. And I just wanted them to be different. And so if I, like, if I really think about it, like I don't know that I ever really wanted to die, but I really wanted to not feel the way that I was feeling. Um, and for, at some point I, I ended up calling a suicide hotline um, and they talked to my parents and they said, I don't know what they said, but the message I got was, okay, you're going to therapy. Um, so I did, I went to a therapist who was not a good fit for me. Um, that is the other thing, right? Like as a therapist, I'm super sarcastic and I'm straightforward and that does not go over well with everybody. Uh, it does mean that I work with teenagers well, not always adults. <laughs> um, so I also have pink hair and they like that. So I think they think I'm cool. But I guess that was just for the people on the podcast since y'all can see my hair. But <laughs> sorry, I also edit out loud as I go. You may have caught on to that. Um, 
Anyway, I went to a therapist. She was not a good fit. And so I decided, I, inst I didn't know what else to do. And I just said, like, this is not working. I'm not going back. Uh, so stayed miserable for a while. And finally, when I got to high school, um, my parents would, like, realized that things were not okay. I was still not doing well. Like I could, I managed to maintain in school. I've always been a good student. I played softball. I like acted, I did all these things, but it's because if I was not busy, then again, I was left alone in my own head. Um, and so right around the time my parents found a new therapist and a psychiatrist and I started to get medicated, I also found drugs. And um, that changed everything because it was the first time that I felt like my brain turned off. And back then I didn't, right, I knew that I was sad. I didn't know that the fact that my brain never shut up also meant I had anxiety. Uh, I didn't know that the fact that I start sweating every time a large group of people looks at me meant that I have anxiety. I also like, I'm super self-conscious about that. And I feel like I just look like I look like, like I just got out of the shower. So if I keep doing this, that's why. Um, I probably didn't need to share that part with you, but that's okay. <laughs> so I got, I got medicated. I got a therapist that was actually a good fit for me, and that probably would have really helped if I had not also been getting high. Um, because I was also getting high, medication doesn't really work, right? So if we go back to the, the like, let me put the Allie the therapist hat back on, right? The way that um, most substances of abuse work is that they operate on one of four neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and GABA. Right, so dopamine creates this sense of wanting. GABA creates this sense of relief. Serotonin and norepinephrine create a sense of happiness. Right? So if I am artificially inflating any of those, and then I am taking a medication that is supposed to help maintain those levels, when I take the medication, it's not gonna work because I'm already artificially inflating them. So. I kept getting high thinking I was just having fun, right? I was, again, managed to stay okay in school. And then uh, my senior year of high school, things got really dark. Um, I got pretty suicidal and pretty hopeless and almost dropped out of high school. Um, my parents walked in one night in December uh, of my senior year and I was lying on the kitchen floor crying, holding a knife. Again, I did not want to die. I just wanted it to be different. Um, I had no concept that my substance use had anything to do with that. I thought it was the, really the only thing that brought me joy. Um, and the, I think it really did. It really was. The first time that I came home high, my mom uh, was in the kitchen and I walked in and I was talking to her and she looked me in the eyes, right? Mind you, this is the, I think this was actually might have been the first time I ever was high. And she looked at me and she said, are you high? And I, of course, internally freaked out because oh god I'm about to get caught um, and I was like no I'm not wrong. and uh, <laughs> who knows what I was doing um, but she said it's just weird you seem really happy um, and in my snarky teenager way I looked at her and I said well that's really sad mom and then like went and hid in my room so she couldn't talk to me anymore um, but that was accurate right I was happy when I was intoxicated um, and when I wasn't, I either had to stay busy so I couldn't think or I was asleep. Um, so that's my senior year of high school that they found me on the kitchen floor crying uncontrollably. Um, they took me, they didn't know what to do because what parent 
knows what to do other than hold your kid when they are in that state. Um, so they called my psychiatrist because again, like if you know, if you need help and you cannot provide it and you need to find out what to do, you call a doctor, right? I, I call the doctor all the time when I need things. Um, and he said, okay, take her to a hospital. Um, so they took me to Peachford Hospital. Years later, right out of grad school, I worked there. I did not enjoy either being there or working there. Um, <laughs> and it is, uh, I think it was probably the jolt that I needed to say like the, what you are doing is not working. And so you've got to find something that is going to work or it's just gonna get worse. Um, I do know that there is part of the reason that I never actually tried to take my life is I could not, I was not willing to put my family through that. Um, I couldn't figure, I didn't want them to find me and I didn't want to just go missing and not have them have any answers. And so I wasn't willing to put my, the people that I loved through that. And so I stuck it out and I'm really glad that I did. Um, I would love to say that I went to Peachford and they like, I like turned my life around after that. And I did not, um, I did keep working with uh, a psychiatrist and a therapist who eventually helped me, um, the therapist eventually helped me see that drugs were a big part of the problem. Um, so I, I did manage to graduate high school. I went to college um, and my first, my second year in college, it got really bad. Um, and I ended up withdrawing. And I, this whole time, my thought was, I'm just so depressed. Right? I did not think that it was that I'm so depressed and also getting high a lot. Um, and then eventually I uh, got caught stealing a bunch of money from my parents and uh, I owned up to my therapist about what had been going on and she went, why didn't you try going to a meeting? Um, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, that's not entirely true. I knew that my grandfather was a recovering alcoholic. He had died before I was born, but my mom talked to me about it. Um, and so I knew a little bit about what meetings are supposed to do, but I didn't think, again, I didn't think I had a drug problem. I thought I had a <coughs> depression problem. Um, so then putting back on the alley therapist hat, right? It is really easy to identify one thing as an issue. And the truth is that you can't separate those things. Right, if I am depressed and I have a problem with addiction, if I don't address both of those things, neither one is going to get better. So I get really, um, part, at my old job, part of what I used to do was evaluations for, uh, to see like, if people needed treatment, what kind of treatment would be most appropriate. And the way that our healthcare system is set up is that you have to have a primary issue. Right? So you have to be primary substance use or primary mental health and that is ridiculous, <laughs> at least to me. Um, the insurance, com insurance companies disagree with me, but that's fine. I don't run the world. Um, if, we, if you are depressed and you are drinking every day, you cannot stop feeling depressed until you stop drinking. And if you do not address the depression, you will go back to drinking, right? So if we do not address them together, we cannot really get better. It feels like it should be on a t-shirt, only because it rhymes, but... Um, with the way that our treatment system works, if you go into treat, go into a mental health treatment facility and then tell them that you are drinking every day, they will probably send you to a substance use treatment facility. So the program that, that I have wor I worked for previously, the last time I was here, is really great at addressing both together. The program that I work for now, also really great. 
Um, I will get on a soapbox all day long talking about how if you are only looking at part of the <coughs> issue, then it's, then it's a problem. Um, another issue with that is that many people in the helping profession, so therapists and psychiatrists, do not actually get a lot of training on addiction. Right, so doctors literally get six hours of training on addiction in the four years that they are in medical school, uh, or at least they did <coughs> back when I was in grad school. It may have changed now, hopefully. Um, therapists get even less than that unless you specialize in it. So I went back to grad school after I was already in recovery, and I would be in these classes with people who like had no basic understanding of addiction, and I would just want to shake them. Um, and it ended up, I mean, it, it would result in a lot of really great conversations, but I felt like part of my purpose of being there was to be like, no, really, you need to learn about this. No, really, you need to learn about this. Let me help you learn about this. <laughs> the teachers probably did not fully appreciate my contributions, but that's fine. Um, so where was I going? Oh, so if you, right, again, if you don't know what the problem is and you're not going to somebody who has an awareness of, of kind of the interplay, Right. Most therapists in their like, intake paperwork don't really ask about alcohol and drug use. Or if they ask about it, they don't ask about like, the relationship with it. Because addiction is not just, I drink every day. It is, I drink every day because of. Right? It is then that because of maybe because I can't, I can't turn my brain off if I don't. Or I can't feel okay if I don't. Or I just don't like my life. Or I have all this trauma. Or it is Thursday at 4 o'clock and that is what I do. Right, so there's always, there's always gonna be a because. Um, people that do not have a problem do not have a problem not drinking, right? So if you ask somebody like, okay, you say that you have a glass of wine with dinner every night, but what happens if you don't? Then you don't know if they can stop or not, right? Like they don't, if their instinct is like, well, why would I do that? Or uh, that makes me feel really uncomfortable, then there may be an issue there. So if you have to know what questions to ask in order to be able to give help. So everybody that I work, the facility that I work in, work with, work in now, goodness gracious, we have a lot of interns and that is a lot of what I talk to them about, right? You have to know what questions to ask and how to ask them. And you have to let people know that you're not, they're not going to be judged for the answer, right? If I, if that second therapist who was a good fit for me, if I had walked into her office and thought that she was going to judge me, I never would have told her what was really going on and I never would have gotten help. And she honestly didn't know that much. She didn't know anything to say other than, why don't you go to a meeting? And I was lucky enough that I got to a meeting and had people that enveloped me. And I had a friend that was in recovery that I didn't actually know was in recovery. And I found out and she took me to meetings. Um, and I, I cannot tell you how much just not using made me feel better for about six months. And then because I do also have a mental health issue and just not using is not enough, I had to address that as well. Um, so I realized when I finally got honest with my psychiatrist that I had been using, he goes, well, no wonder your meds didn't work. I went, okay, thanks, smart ass. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to. <laughs> um, sorry. So, we ended up being able to find a medication for me that did really work and my what worked for me was medication plus therapy so I needed to talk about what was going on in my life as well as have my brain have something else help regulate the chemicals in my brain um, and that worked for a really long time um, recovery plus talk therapy 
plus me uh, medication worked for a very long time for me um, it didn't work when uh, I would go through periods every once in a while where I go well things are really going well maybe I don't need therapy anymore or things are going really well maybe I should take go off my medication um, every time that that happened which has uh, been a two or three times in the last 16 years, I would get really depressed, really anxious, and I would come very close to relapse. Uh, and I am fortunate, uh, fortunate enough in my life to have people, fortunate enough to have people in my life that can recognize those warning signs and can help pull me out of it because I <laughs> have not been able to do it for myself. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about tonight is what to look for. Right, so we, I imagine that you guys have heard a lot about what to look for in substance use. Um, there's a ton of right, after-school specials that talk about, right, like they're not doing things or hanging with the different people or not doing well in school. Um, for me, the biggest thing to look for was, have I not done laundry in two weeks? And when was the last time I took a shower? Right? When I am not taking care of my personal hygiene, I am severely depressed. And if I'm severely depressed, I'm probably about to get high. Um, there was a period of time when I had about four years clean that uh, I was not on my medication. Uh, I was still going to meetings, um, but not really participating. Um, I wasn't spending a lot of time with people and I just, it, it was terrible. I felt terrible. I, again, was in that place of I want everything to change. Um, I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. And if I had not had um, my mom and my godmother stick me in a car and drive me out into the middle of nowhere and say, what is going on with you? Uh, I probably would have gotten high. Um, that is not to say it went well when they did that. Um, I got very defensive <laughs> and uh, did not want help. Um, I did, but I didn't want it in the way that they were giving it. My mom is just as sarcastic and direct as I am, and I do not always respond well to it. Um, so eventually, like, I did have an honest conversation with them and say, I do really need help. Uh, and I went back on my meds and I went back to therapy and I started going to more meetings uh, and talking to the people that I was close to in my life. Um, and then again, I would like to say that that is the last time that happened, but it, it's not. Um, the difference between that time then and the, so I guess it's only happened twice. The next time it happened is that I knew what to do the next time, right? So once I've asked for help, I know how to ask for help in the future. Uh, doesn't mean I'm always willing to ask for help in the moment, but I know how to, right? So the next time that I fell into that kind of place of depression, I was able to reach out and say, like, I know things are not okay. What, the, what I am doing now is not working, so I need to do something different. Uh, and I think that we get this message, not I think, I know that we get this message a lot of time in recovery that like if you go back to the basics, that it will help, um, that things will get better. Like all you have to do is, is the basics. And in 12-step programs, that looks like going to meetings, talking to your sponsor, and talking to your network. Um, that doesn't fix mental health, though. So for me, the basics is going to meetings, talking to my sponsor, talking to my network, taking my meds, and going to therapy. Um, 
That does not mean that your kids will be in therapy for the rest of their lives. If anybody's worried about that, I've had plenty of periods of time where I have not needed it, but sometimes I need it again. Um, so the thing that I hear, that I used to hear a lot when I first got clean was that all you had to do was like work the steps, go to meetings. And um, that's just not been my story. And I think that the more we learn about mental health issues, the more um, open people get to all paths of recovery. Um, I do not believe that there is one right way to do it. I do know there is a way that worked for me and works for millions of people. Um, and I believe that I will take help wherever I can get it. Right, so my, the way that I view my job is to help people in the way that they will let me, which is not always the way I think they should let me, but it is the way that they let me, um, and to help them get to where they want to be. Right, The therapist that, that I met when I was 15 and who I worked with until I was 25, um, she would push me gently in ways that... Uh, I wasn't really ready to look at, right? Like my using or the fact that I would go to therapy and not talk about myself at all, right? I was 15 years old spending an hour talking about other people, which is just a waste of money for the record. Uh, but it was, it was all I could get to at that moment, right? Like when I was finally ready to talk about what was going on with me, she was there and I trusted her enough to do that. Um, I feel like I've gotten way off track, y'all. I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Sorry. Um, so uh, all that to say, it is important to me to be that kind of person to other, to s other people. Um, I want to be somebody that can be safe and knowledgeable enough to help. Uh, and if I don't have the knowledge to have Google to help, um, help find the right person, that is. Uh, and I want, I want to be somebody that can start a conversation around that. Right, so when I am in meetings, there back when I first got clean, a lot of people would say that talking about mental health issues was was out, it should be done outside of a meeting. That that wasn't a, what recovery was or recovery meetings were about. And my opinion is that if my not being on my medication or not going to therapy is impacting my recovery, then I get to talk about it. Um, and my opinion is that anything that impacts my well-being is going to impact my recovery ultimately. So I need to talk about it. Um, I also am not a huge believer in, uh, how do I put this, I guess social norms. Um, not, that's not right. But like, so when people, when somebody walks down the street and they ask me how I'm doing, I give them an honest answer. Mm -hmm. all right? And oftentimes that is crazy as usual because I'm a little all over the place. Um, but I, I'm not the kind of person that says, oh, I'm good, oh, I'm okay when I'm not because I, that has gotten me into trouble in the past. All right, my parents did not, genuinely did not know that anything was wrong because I got really, really good at pretending that nothing was. Uh, and I, frankly, I think that is why I also did really well in drama club in high school, right? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I, I can put up a good front when I need to. Um, and yet I, I don't want to anymore, right? So that's why I when I came up here, I said, I need to sit down. So I feel like we're having a conversation and hey, I'm super anxious. Because if I say those things, then I feel like I can actually authentically connect with y'all. <laughs> and I'm not just uh, up here like spewing a bunch of crap. Um, it's important to me to 
be the person that I am in all areas of my life because I spent way too long not being and frankly not knowing who that person was. Um, and I want other people to share that with me, right? So like, again, I work with teenagers and uh, they are not always, so they're, they're kids who are struggling, but they're not always ready and willing to talk about what's really going on when they walk into my office. And so they'll walk in and they'll say, yeah, I'm fine. And I go, do you know what fine stands for? Uh, and then they roll their eyes at me. Um, they do that a lot. And I tell them it means effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? Because I know that nobody walks into my office in a good place, right? That's just not a thing. Uh, you don't end up in treatment because everything is going well, right? Um, and they, after they are done rolling their eyes and trying not to laugh at me, they are usually willing to talk to me at least a little. Um, I feel like I don't entirely know where to go from there. So I think I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> um, but I do want to say, like, there has been so many, there have been so many amazing things that have happened in my life. And I know that I could not have them if I did not get clean. Um, I also know that I have had periods many, many times where the, my anxiety gets out of control and my depression gets really bad. Um, and I can see a way out of them now, right? I know that they do not last forever. Uh, I have, it's been a very long time since I've thought about killing myself. Now when I get stressed, and since I thought about using, but now when I get stressed out, I occasionally fantasize about faking my death and moving to Mexico. Um, because for some reason I think there's no problems in Mexico. I don't know what that's about. Uh, but 99% of the time, I want to be in the life that I'm in. Right? Recovery taught me how to show up in both the good and the bad times. Uh, and emotional stability has shown me that I'm not always going to be emotionally stable. Um, and that is true whether I am depressed and anxious or I am just having a hard day at work, right? I had a really tough conversation with a client before I got here, right? A kid who was really hurting, but who was not willing to do anything different yet. And it, it, my heart aches for her because I remember what that was like. I remember one feeling like nothing could be different and then getting to a place where people kept telling me that it could be different, but I wasn't actually willing to do anything <coughs> different yet. All right, so one of the toughest things, I guess I'm not stopping talking, sorry y'all. Um, <laughs> one of the toughest things about mental health issues and substance use is that so much of the world looks at things as a choice. And parts of them are, parts of it is, right? I, if, if I am clean today and I pick up a drink tomorrow, that is absolutely a choice. But if I am drunk today and I pick up a drink tomorrow I and mean, I'm in active addiction, I have no choice in that moment, right? I have a choice to get clean if I can get somewhere that, that can help me, but I, it, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to be able to do it on my own. If I am in the depths of despair and super depressed and I cannot get out of bed, right, it is probably a cannot and not a will not. The trick is... <laughs> that if I am depressed and I know what skills to use and I have a moment, a glimpse, 
of where I have the, like, it's no longer a cannot, like I'm feeling just okay enough to where I can, I then have to make the choice to get out of bed. All right, so a lot of the, the people that I work with will say, the teens especially will say, well, I just can't do that. It's almost always about going to school too. All right, I just can't go. And I'm like, nope, you could get here, which means you can get somewhere. So what are you willing to do? Because not going to school is not going to fix your anxiety about school, right? You're just going to keep missing assignments and missing classes, and then it's going to get worse, right? So like, I'm, I'm there to help them stop that snowball from going down the hill because I knew that I needed people for me to help stop that snowball, right? When my anxiety get, whoop, I'm touching the microphone. Um, when my anxiety gets out of control today, I call somebody because I can't reel it in myself. I need somebody else to help me do that. Um, Luckily, I have people to pick up the phone for me today because I'm not stealing money from them to buy drugs anymore. Backing up a little bit, I think I started to talk about warning signs and then I got distracted, right? So there are, for me, the biggest warning signs are I'm not showering and I'm not doing laundry. Um, and to be clear, it's not that like the laundry sitting in the laundry bin, it's that you can't see my floor because it's covered in dirty clothes. Um, and I'm good at functioning just enough so that like my dog gets outside and my and eats and so from the outside unless you can make it into like my inner circle you can't really tell anything's wrong and that is the case I think for a lot of people there are some people that have very overt signs of refusing to go to school or work or or not being able to right sometimes it's refusal sometimes it's can't uh, poor grades Lot, like losing interest in the things that they used to do. Um, and sometimes it's not as obvious. Sometimes we have to look for the little things. And I can tell you that with depression, it is the first thing that usually goes is personal hygiene, right? So if your kid hasn't washed their hair in a week, then there might be an issue. I keep saying kid, sorry, it's because I'm a family therapist. If your partner, if your friend, anyone in your life, right? Um, with anxiety, if they are, if they're making it like making plans and canceling a lot, that's usually a good sign that that's anxiety based. Um, those are the two biggest ones uh, for each of those, but there's a ton of mental health issues out there, right? And that can also, that can come with addiction as well, right? I used to make plans and cancel them all the time because I was hungover or high, right? And I knew that I couldn't show up that way, right? And sometimes all we know is that something is not okay, something is not right. Um, and all we can do is say what we see and what we feel, right? So when I talk to parents, a lot of what they ask me is like, how do I do this? Or is it okay? I get that a lot. Is it okay if I, if I ask if they're using or if I ask if they're uh, in a relapse? And it's always okay to say what you see and what you feel, right? So if you notice that your kid has stopped showing up or your partner is not going to work on time ever, right? If you feel like they are emanating this negative energy, right? Then you can always say that, right? I always get to say to you, Terrence, sorry, you're stuck in front of me, so you're gonna be my example tonight. Uh, Terrence, I noticed that your clothes look rumpled and maybe you haven't washed your hair in a couple days, like everything okay? The hair on the sides, of course. Um, <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right, I can, it is always okay to say that. Right? It is not okay to go, hey, Terrence, you look terrible. What the hell's going on? Right? Like that 
nobody's going to respond going to want to respond to that but saying what you notice and what you feel is always okay right whether that is a friend a family member or a coworker if other people don't reach out to us then we don't feel okay reaching out to them um, the other big thing that I get from family question I get from family members a lot is like when am I going to feel like it's safe like they are safe like I don't have to worry as much um, and the short answer is that it takes most people about a year the long answer is that that year is not the same right it's it's going to be different for every person so for my mom like she felt uh, a lot more secure when I had about a year and that I was going to stay clean and then when I had four years and was back in that depressive episode and acting out in a lot of ways like she got really scared again um, and I had a conversation with her a couple months ago um, where she said like she said to me I'm gonna have to live the rest of my life knowing that you might use again um, and yet I don't think you're gonna do it today right so she is not afraid on a daily basis the way that she used to be uh, and she also knows that I will call her if I'm not okay also, to be clear, like I'm 37 and there's like part of me feels like I shouldn't be calling my mother, right? <laughs> but she's my mom and I love her and I know that she's going to be there for me no matter what. Um, so she's often the first person that I do call because she also struggles with mental health and I know that she can relate to that. Um, the other piece of that is that uh, there's a huge com genetic component to both mental health issues and addiction. Again, I don't know why I keep separating those two, but I do. Uh, and my mom did not get help for her depression until I got help for mine. Um, when she first met with um, the, the psychiatrist that I saw, um, she recognized all the things that he was telling her about what was going on with me in her and said, oh, maybe I need to get some help too. And it was wonderful, right? Our, it is, my mom and I get along so much better when we are both medicated. It's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, now if I could just get my dad, no, uh, he's fine. <laughs> um, but it was, very, it was very much the like sleeping all the time, um, not taking care of yourself physically, uh, looking for those. And the, so the flip side of that is that, right, like doing the things that I need to do for myself include doing those things, right? I don't feel good about myself if I don't shower. So like if I sleep through my alarm and I'm running late for work and I'm like, well, I don't want to take a shower today, I don't feel great, right? Because my physical being has been so tied to my emotional being. So I have to take care of, of all aspects. Um, I do this exercise at, at work called the wellness wheel where you like look at these, it's like nine dimensions of wellness and, um, a lot of them are things that I don't think of as like being good, right? Like financial wellness. I don't have a lot of fun meeting with a financial advisor, but it is something that I do to feel good about my life, which then allows me to feel whole and, and, and well, right? Like spiritual wellness. Like I, I have to think about my sense of connection and my sense of purpose and my sense of meaning, because if I don't have a sense of purpose and meaning, then eventually I start to feel hopeless. Right? And for me, a lot of that is, is just being of service to other people. Right? I feel better about myself when I help others. Um, and I have to be really careful about letting that not consume me because helping people is part of what I do for a living. And I do not want to be any more of a workaholic than I already am. <laughs> so I have to make sure that that is not the only way that I fill myself up.
Uh, I can't remember what else I promised to talk to you all about tonight. So I know we talked a little bit, I talked a little bit about warning signs, kind of the prevalence of what's going on, of, of things that are out there. Um, I do want to say if, if you guys have loved ones or if you are yourselves in recovery, that uh, it takes around 18 months for your brain chemistry to really kind of set back to normal after you stop using. So really anywhere from between a year and two years. Um, that is usually when you want to start looking out for any warning signs, right? So if somebody has struggled with depression and anxiety while using, then they may still struggle with it afterwards, or they may not. It may, like getting clean may be what they needed. Uh, however, if they do have some sort of mental health issue, once their brain is back to baseline, right, around 18 months, then that's when the, the underlying mental health stuff will really start to come out if it's not, appropriate, not appropriately addressed. So if you have people out there in your lives, I'm not saying go like follow them around with a microscope. I'm just saying it's always okay to say what you see and feel. And if you feel that there is concern or if you see things that are concerning, then know that sometimes we need some tweaks, right? What I did yesterday is not always gonna work for me today. Um, so while yes, going to the basic, back to the basics will help, sometimes those actions have to be a little bit different each time I do them. Um, I know I've been all over the world and back here. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me. That's kind of, I, I, don't li I don't think very linearly. And uh, I hope that y'all were able to kind of follow where I was going. Um, I would love to be able to answer any questions that you may have, whether that's from a personal perspective or a professional perspective. All right, I'm so glad that you asked. I didn't, or you raised your hand. I didn't have to just stare at y'all. <laughs> <laughs> So for a psychiatrist, it's a little different because most psychiatrists are really only going to talk to you for about 15 minutes. Um, so it's just the way it works. Um, I will say that I don't necessarily, like I want to feel like I, as long as I can be honest about data, like the information with my psychiatrist, I'm not necessarily as worried about the personality fit. Um, with a therapist, it's a little more important. Um, and I'm not, it's not to say that you shouldn't be a good fit with your psychiatrist. You just spend less time with them. Um, so with a therapist, usually you can tell like the first session if you like their personality, right? So I, again, I'm, I show up the same in pretty much every space I'm in. So I'm gonna make some weird jokes and I'm gonna edit out loud and I'm gonna be a little sarcastic uh, in every session that I have. And if people don't like sarcasm, I always also, also I always say in the first session, like I'm pretty sarcastic and I'm pretty direct. And if those do not work for you, I need you to let me know so that I can help you get somewhere. Um, but I also, when I go to see a new therapist, I say like, these are the things that I look for, right? I look for somebody that is going to let me like kind of tell stories tangentially <laughs> because I don't do a straight line very well. Uh, I look for somebody who is, if I get off track, gonna make me kind of like tell me that I have to talk about myself again. So is who is direct enough to do that. Uh, and I look for somebody that has a sense of humor because like if I'm the only one laughing at my jokes, eventually that gets kind of old. 
Um, thank you, thank you. All right. Uh, so really, like, kind of in the first session, you can tell if the personality is going to fit, and then from a, a theoretical perspective, right? Because every therapist has kind of a different like method that they use. Um, it really, you can, it usually takes like two to three sessions. So like psychoanalysis is really all about talking about your, uh, how you're, like what happened to you as a child and your relationship with your family and how that impacts your life today. Um, and I've done a ton of that. So like, I'm, I'm like, I'm good. I don't need another psychoanalyst. I need somebody that's gonna like help me kind of really focus on, like be more solution focused and look at what's happening right here in this moment. Um, I am very attachment based, right? So I look at how our attachments to people over time impact our mood, right? So I had, as I told you, right, I moved around a lot as a kid, so I didn't really attach to people. I just figured everybody in my life was gonna leave me, which means that as an adult, if I think everybody's gonna leave me, then it's really hard for me to develop close relationships. So. I look at how our attachment style and how our ability to attach other people impacts our lives, which works really well in a family because if you've got a teenager who feels like they don't fit in the family and needs to learn how to be a part of, then I get to help with that. But that you usually don't know for a few sessions. Absolutely. So psychiatry. I had a psychiatrist tell me one time that as long as they went to medical school, they get it. And that is not true in my experience. Uh, again, very little training on addiction. Most people that, um, if, they are, if they're calling themselves an addictionologist, right, that's somebody that's had specific training in addiction medicine. Uh, we are incredibly lucky in Atlanta that Emory has a, a, a great addiction medicine program. So there are a, a lot of people, a lot of psychiatrists in Atlanta that do have a lot of knowledge. Um, there are some people that are in recovery and then go into the field of psychiatry and so they have that knowledge but may not be certified in addiction medicine. I, when I am looking for a psychiatrist who, is, who I need to work with somebody with a substance use issue, I ask what their experience is. Right? I wanna know if you are certified in addiction medicine, I wanna know how long you have worked in that field, I wanna know if you come from a medication uh, from a maintenance medication standpoint or a, an abstinence standpoint, um, because it's all gonna impact how you practice. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? I know it went a little long. Okay. Yes, John. Well, when you have a young adult or an adult that's got an addiction issue mm -hmm. or behavioral issue, <clears throat> where they're not taking their medication, what, what issue do you attack first? They're using drugs and they're not taking their prescribed medication. What do you attack first? So that's a good question. Um, I would say get the meds in them so that when they stop using, they will be slightly more stable. Um, with that said, there are some mental health issues that are harder to make that happen. Um, depression and anxiety, people are a lot more likely to be, com we call it med, med compliant, compli they're a lot more likely to take their medications. Um, things like that have a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? more of a manic feel to it, right? So bipolar disorder or um, something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective, people are less likely to be medication compliant. And so then it may be that you need to get them to stop using so that they are coherent enough to take their medication. Um, if we're talking 
not not anything that has any psychosis or mania with it, I would say focus on the meds first. Because if you can get them to take that like one little step towards wellness, they're more likely to take the bigger step towards putting the drugs and alcohol down too. Oh, absolutely. I thought I saw somebody over here. My question is yeah. very related to the meds. Mm -hmm. because it's, um, I don't know if it's a formal question except to say that it's very difficult to hand a recover, maybe recovering or maybe wind up going mm -hmm. addict to you know, Xanax and Adderall and all these things. Um, and he's an adult. Yeah. So is he, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to say take it in front of me because I don't want to. So. Yeah, that is an incredibly difficult situation to be in. Um, Can you repeat? Yes, sorry. Right, so, Judy. Judy, thank you. I was trying to see your name tag, but your hair's covering it up. Um, Judy was asking, uh, essentially, it sounds like what you're asking is what, is there a line between like what medications people in recovery should take and should not take, and how do you be supportive of what they need when you don't really know what that line is. Yeah. What, keeps them what keeps them from abusing those medications? Um, short answer, nothing keeps is going to keep you from abusing them if you decide to. Long answer, um, m full disclosure when I say this, I am not a doctor. I do often pretend to be one, but I am not one. <laughs> uh, so. I don't recommend people in early recovery take any substance that can be abused, right? So if they've historically been on something like Xanax or another benzodiazepine or a stimulant like Adderall, I don't recommend that they take them in the beginning. Um, if they are absolutely must take them, right? Like say you just cannot function without the Adderall, then I recommend that somebody else be the one that hands over those medications. However, I can't have, I mean, I can't employ somebody for the rest of my life to be my in-home med dispenser, right? Um, there are safes that you can buy that will dispense medication for you, and I know it's a whole thing. Um, and if I have to do that, then that's probably not something I should be taking. Um, in early recovery, when you have somebody that is living in your house, my stance as a family therapist is that yes, you may be an adult, but you still have to follow the rules, right? If I live, if I'm an adult and I live with a roommate, I don't just get to do whatever I want, right? We have house rules or we have norms, right? I'm not going to walk around naked when my roommate's got their younger sibling over it, right? Like it, there are things that you do to, to live in a community. So w even with young adults, I don't know how old your child is, but I will say like, no, you need to take your meds in front of your family. Um, and if that is a medication that they've, that is going to have to be for the rest of their lives, then maybe we need to look at something different. So benzos in particular were not initially designed to be taken long term. The way that they are prescribed now is that they are prescribed like for the rest of your life, but they actually increase anxiety over time. Um, so generally speaking, what I recommend is that you talk to your psychiatrist about a non-sedative uh, medication. There are plenty of them out there. The problem is none of them will do what Xanax does, right? So if you're expecting a medication to fix your anxiety the way that Xanax will turn your brain off, it's not going to do that. But it will get it to a place that it is manageable enough that you can use some coping skills so that you can live your life. 
same deal with Adderall. So I'm, I'm really big on what's called occupational therapy. So it's like there are people that are occupational therapists. You go to them, you learn how to function in your life with ADHD without taking meds. Right, so I knit. That is my bit, my big thing. I would be knitting right now if I could, but that feels at least a little un unprofessional. Um, so instead, I just do this with my hands the whole time. Um, but it's a big coping mechanism for me, right? If I am doing something with my hands, it keeps at least a little bit of my brain quiet, and so I can I can function enough in my life. I did it all through high school, college, grad school. I do it in work at work. It helps. So occupational therapists will also teach you things like how to develop routines, how to have like touch points. So like if I don't put my keys in the same place every day, I will never ever find them again. Right? If I do not keep my phone in the same pocket, it's actually in that bag, then I will never ever find it again. Right? And I learned that from watching my mother never ever find them again. Uh, but so occupational therapy is something that I always recommend to people that struggle with ADHD. It, again, it's not going to fix it in the way that a medication will, but it teaches you how to function so that you don't need that piece. And there are non-stimulant medications for ADHD that are super effective. Um, so I always recommend that people talk to their doctors about those as well. Does that actually answer any of your questions? Okay. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So the. Um, Right, the, I talked about the different neurotransmitters. So dopamine is, is the wanting, uh, creates a sense of wanting, right? So it doesn't, when we use things like cocaine or other stimulants, it creates this want, but it doesn't necessarily create the relief after the want. So if you don't have dopamine paired with GABA, then you, you just want more and more and more and more. So if you think about like when you're on a roller coaster and you're going up right to the top and you have this kind of like anticipation, right? That's the, the dopamine feeling. And then if you, once you whoosh down the other side and you're at the bottom, you're like, oh, that was amazing. That's the GABA. But if you have a stimulant that's only creating the dopamine and you don't get the GABA, then your anxiety is gonna be out of control. So things like benzos give you an in intense hit of GABA, but they don't, that kicks up the dopamine and you can't, because you've artificially inflated the GABA, you can't compensate for it. So you just get more and more anxious and you have to take more and more benzos. So, that doesn't mean that all is hopeless. And it also doesn't mean that your child is going to have an issue. Like I do know people in recovery that are able to take benzos and are able to take stimulants and they don't have any problems with it. I, I sponsor somebody that does, but she's really upfront with me and she's really upfront with her therapist and her psychiatrist. And she will say like, I had so much anxiety today that I really wanted to take another pill, but I know that I'm not supposed to, so I didn't. Right? And she talked to me extensively before she went on that medication. Went, and I had to say, like, I'm not your doctor. You got to talk to your doctor. This is what I would do. But I'm not your doctor. So it is a slippery slope, though. It's hard. And I'll be honest, for families, it's really hard to trust that they're going to do the right thing when we've had so much experience with them making bad decisions. I hope it gets better. John? So we're kind of back to John's There seems to be so much support, if you will, at work around substance abuse these days. <laughs> years and years of going to depends about patient programs, <clears throat> um, having meetings, having sponsors, right? But on the mental health side, that seems very um, 
shallow to me in terms of what's mm -hmm. available and where do you where do you go? How do you help? Um, in other words, what 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 to to his question of what do you really attack first? Mm -hmm. How do you attack that and, and try to unlock that? My word, not you know, in terms of getting somebody to understand that that depression and anxiety is a mental illness that needs to be dealt with. So. Full disclosure, my dad is um, an expert in the Americans with Disabilities Act, so I pull that card a lot. <laughs> um, it doesn't always go over well when I come at it with a hammer, um, but any diagnosable mental health issue is covered under the ADA, and so employers have to recognize it. Um, it doesn't mean that they have to be compassionate about it. So a lot of times what I'll do is I, I, when I want somebody to recognize that, that some, there is a problem, right? And it is not just a willful resistance. Um, I just do, I try to educate them. And I, I do that by telling my story, right? And my story is that I was super high functioning on the outside and felt dead on the inside. And uh, I was able to function until I couldn't. Um, I don't know if I'm actually answering your question, but hopefully I'll get there. So, right, if I am talking to you, so I, I used to talk a lot to, um, employers back when I worked with more with adults and a lot of employers would be like well I don't understand it's not that big of an issue they've always been fine before and I'm like well it comes in waves so depression in particular is cyclical uh, people tend to have these kind of like they may their their baseline may be below average but they do like come up and down right so just because they are functioning in this moment doesn't mean they're going to be able to function long term and they are not going to have periods where they really struggle and so they may need some extra help and just because somebody is asking for extra help at times does not mean that they will need extra help forever so from a a lot of times people think about like well are they actually going to be able to do their job are they actually going to be able to get this done like are these people actually going to be able to function on their own and the truth is there are all times and every one of us has a time in our life where we can't function on our own and we need help for some people we are in diapers when that happens and for some people we are full-blown adults and we just need a minute that minute may be a while but we need a minute um, so really just trying to educate them around like let me tell you what the the signs of mental illness are I also hate using the term mental illness. Yeah, uh, it pops out of my mouth because I went to grad school, but it, it is what it is. Uh, so let me t talk to you about the signs of mental health issues, and let me talk to you about how if we can get if we can contain it and get help now, that long term this won't be an issue, right? So I, I use I also use the analogy of chronic pain, right? If I so one of the things that was not great that happened when I was using is that I tore my ACL. Uh, and had to have surgery and I was so busy getting high that I didn't do my physical therapy and so I have chronic pain in my knee. And uh, if I had just done the physical therapy when I was 20, I'm probably not gonna need a knee replacement by the time I'm 45. But because I didn't do the physical therapy, I'm probably gonna need that knee replacement. And that knee replacement, way more expensive, <laughs> right, than going to the physical therapy appointments. So if we can get people help now, then long term, we don't lose out. Did that actually answer any of your question? Okay, good. Yeah, go ahead, Natalie. So somewhat related to what you just said. So mm -hmm. then like, if you notice those signs of the <coughs> young adult is going through depression or anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, but he's in denial. He, he, or like you just, re, re, you mentioned your mom just because mm -hmm. I took you somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Basically have that. 
that help or did, did, did you then eventually decided you, you needed the help and then get the help at that time? I got really mad at first. Um, and part, part of the reason I got really mad is because that's also how she confronted me about my drug use. And so it was the second time she'd done it to me where she got me in a car and then drove me out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I did, I got really mad at first. And then the first time it took about a day for me to say, no, yeah, I, I really do need help. And the second time it took about 30 minutes. Um, I will say that's probably because I already knew before that that I struggled with mental health issues. Um, people don't like it when we point out things that they may not be doing well. And if we already struggle with feeling good about ourselves, we often interpret concern as uh, saying we're not doing enough. Um, truthfully, I pull out my DSM, my di the, it's the diagnostic manual that we use, and I just read the symptoms and, to people and say, like, tell me if you identify with any of these. And I'm not saying go buy a DSM. Um, <laughs> but I, what I am saying is you can say like, hey, I've, I've noticed these things in you and that concerns me because it sounds a lot like this lady that told her story at Parents of Prodigals the other night. Like I've, I've seen these things and I've been worried about you and I just wanna know how I can help you. And then they have to make the decision from there. And the decision is just to say, yes, you're right or no, you're not. And if they say, no, you're not, then you, you say, okay, well, if you decide that something is wrong, I am here to help when you're ready. Because right? ultimately, it does have to be their decision. Right? We cannot force them to get help in any way unless you got a court order, and that's really hard to get. <laughs> so, um, but, right, it's from the time, if we look at like the scale of things, when I was 10 years old, I started feeling depressed, and it took until I was 13 to get help that first time. Um, so it went from three years to one day to one, <laughs> 30 minutes. So the more that you keep saying, the more that you say, like, I'm here for when you're ready, the easier it will get. Absolutely. And yeah, I already. mentioned at the beginning that you, while you work with the individual, your preference is to engage the whole family. Mm -hmm. Explain, you know, kind of, the, the why behind that, um, yeah. and you know, just working with an individual that doesn't have the family support, mm -hmm. uh, to me, is, is the answer to that, but um, it just shows how, how important family is, or whatever that yeah. family, you know, makeup could be. Um, yeah, so uh, we don't recover in a vacuum, right? Like. Um, I heard somebody say once that my son's addiction impacted me and so my son's recovery impacts me. Uh, and that goes, that is the same for, for mental health issues as well. I know that my depression impacted my family. I know that I am a much better member of my family when I am not depressed. Um, so I, I, part of the re <laughs> okay, full disclosure, part of the reason that I love to work with families is because it's much more interesting to me. Uh, there's like, I, I love conflict mediation, and so like I, I like helping people communicate better, and I'm also a little ADHD, so if I've got one person staring, staring at me for an hour, I'm like counting the ceiling tiles. But if I've got four people in here that are trying to argue with each other, then I've, it's easier for my brain to stay engaged. Uh, <laughs> so that is, that's the super secret, not so secret anymore, answer to why I love family work. 
but it is also because no one does this alone. And I have done family therapy with biological parents, with step parents, with adopted parents, with partners, with friends, with sponsors, right? Anybody that we identify as our support network, we can do therapy with. Uh, and we need that support, right? And so when people are in treatment, what I, the person who is in treatment, what I tell them all the time is, it is your job to tell people what support means. So again, hey Terrence, welcome back to my examples. Right? If I come up to you and I say, well, I just need you to support me, and you go, okay, I'm here, but I don't tell you what that means, then there is nothing you can do for me. Right? So once we get the person into family therapy and we say, they say, well, you're just not supportive enough, and I go, okay, what's support look like? If they can't answer, then how, of course, how are you going to support somebody that can't tell you what they need? And sometimes the answer is, I don't know, in which case, me as a family therapist, I jump in, I go, okay, do you need them to help do laundry? Do you need to help them to come, like, search your house with you so that you, there's, you know there's no alcohol? Do you need, right, like, I can help provide that, some of those answers. Uh, but if we do not involve the people in our lives, then we are not going to be able to sustain change. It's just like being like try, be, trying to be on a diet, right? If I am cutting out sugar and I am hanging out with my friends who are all eating cake all the time and I don't tell them that I'm not eating cake anymore, eventually I am going to eat cake. But if I say to my friends, guys, I'm really trying not to eat sugar, can you, can you just help me out and like eat your cake when you leave my house? <laughs> then I'm much more likely to be able to sustain that change. And my brain will stay busy. Uh, what advice yeah. do you have for uh, parents, or whether, whether they're teenagers or adults, mm -hmm. that need to go to a therapist and or doctor but refuse to go? And it's not life-threatening, and they're not threatening to hurt somebody else, or it's not where it's a 1013 situation. How do you, what do you tell parents? How do you convince how do you help parents get their kid or their adult family member to a, to a physician, to a therapist? So it's easier if they're living in your house, right? Because you can do the, like, in order to get this privilege, it's easier when they're a teenager. In order to get this privilege, you have to go to therapy, right? You can't make them talk once they get there, but you can at least kind of coerce them into going. Um, I will say I have had people kind of take a back door to it and like say I want us to go work on our relationship together right so I've also worked with adult children and and their parents and so they will start out by saying um, like let's go to family therapy and then that turns into individual therapy I've had that happen more on more than one occasion and I did not realize it was happening until all of a sudden I was an individual therapist um, <laughs> so but kind of finding any in that you can. And sometimes it's easier to get people to go talk, go to a support group or to go to like talk to a life coach. Um, I have also, there's a, a incredible therapist in the Atlanta area who does what, what's called adventure therapy. And so it's a, sometimes easier to get people to go see him because they're like, you're gonna go do a ropes course, like go. And then all of a sudden you're talking to this guy and you didn't even know that was happening. Um, it's still called therapy though. So it's, there, it's not quite a trick. Um, but, and it, I realized that I, I just told you all that I, I wanna show up as my authentic self and now I'm saying trick your kid into therapy. That's <laughs> um, a little bit contradictory. Um, but it really is like if they will, they may not be willing to accept the kind of help that you think or know that they need, but if they are willing to accept any help, then that will work. So part of like I've done that as like a 
kind of like a peer mentoring thing, like where I've had people say like, well, he, my brother won't go to see a therapist, but will you come tell him about your recovery? Absolutely, right? And then I showed up at my friend's house and had dinner with her and her brother and he didn't know that I was coming to talk to him about my recovery, but that's what I did. Um, and it, we always come back to like, at some point we can't force people to get help. We just have to let them know that we're ready when they are willing to get it. Hope that helped. If it's a teenager, just take their phone away. They'll crumble in a minute. <laughs> you know? Anything else I can do for y'all tonight? Yes, go ahead. Can you come to my house? I'm real happy to be you anything that you want. Yes, I will. I'll give you my card, and then we'll figure it out. I don't know how old your son is, but a lot He's of the... older than you are. Okay. I was going to say, I get a lot of pushback from young adults. Um, and then I get to tell them that they're full of crap because I got clean when I was 20. And I know that it does not matter how old anyone is. Help is there if you want it. And if you don't want it, all you got to do is be willing to accept it. So I like to differentiate between willingness and desire. Right? I did not want to get clean when I did, but I was willing to not be homeless because that was my other option. My parents, my mom put me in a car and she said, get out or get honest. And um, I had nowhere else to go. And so I got honest. And I'd, eventually that turned into a desire to stay clean. But it was really just a willingness to not be homeless in the beginning. But yes, I will come tell my story whether he knows it's coming or not. And I don't eat fresh tomatoes. <laughs> okay, thank you guys for inviting me here. It was great.